Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Volts for April 26th, 2023, building a movement that can take full advantage of the IRA. I'm your host, David Roberts. For all that has been written about the Inflation Reduction Act, the most salient fact about it remains widely underappreciated. What is significant about the bill is not just that it sends an enormous amount of money toward climate solutions, but that the money is almost entirely uncapped. The total amount of federal money that will be spent on climate solutions via the IRA will not be determined by any preset limit, but by demand for the tax credits. The more qualified applicants that seek them, the more will be spent. The Congressional Budget Office estimated the bill's spending at $391 billion, but a report last year from Credit Suisse put the number at $800 billion, and a more recent Goldman Sachs report put it closer to $1.2 trillion. Big companies will have teams of lawyers to tell them when they qualify for the tax credits. But there are also billions and billions of dollars in the IRA that are meant to be spent on vulnerable and underserved communities. Those communities do not typically have teams of lawyers. Who will work with them to enable them to take full advantage of the available money in the IRA? Getting that done will require campaigns, relationships, and grassroots mobilization. It will require, in short, movement infrastructure. A relatively new grant-making coalition called Mosaic is attempting to help build that infrastructure by dispersing money to the frontline organizations that comprise it. Mosaic is a cooperative effort among large national environmental groups like NRDC, big foundations, and various smaller regional, often BIPOC-led groups. It has pooled philanthropic money and thus far given almost $11 million of it to dozens of relatively small groups and campaigns, 85% of them BIPOC-led, 87% of them female-led, selected by a governing committee from well over 1,000 applicants. The governing committee contains a supermajority of representatives from frontline communities. The foundations have a minority representation on the committee. To discuss the need for movement infrastructure, the mosaic effort, and the possibilities IRA offers for frontline communities, I contacted Dr. Hari Han, a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University, and David Beckman, one of the founders of Mosaic and the current president of the Pisces Foundation. We talked about what movement infrastructure is, the failure of the climate movement to build enough of it, and Mosaic's theory of change. So, without any further ado... Ari Han and David Beckman, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thanks, David. I want to start with you, Hari. You have written in the past, and one of the themes of your work is that social welfare legislation or policy can often fail to reach, let's say, its full potential if there isn't the sort of civic and movement infrastructure around it to help it succeed. So maybe you can just talk for a little bit about what do we mean by infrastructure here? What does infrastructure mean? And maybe also what I think would be helpful is maybe you could cite some examples of times you think legislation or reforms fell short of what they could have done because of a lack of infrastructure. And then maybe some examples of, you know, when there was infrastructure and that was helpful. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, there are so many instances when in trying to tackle some of our stickiest social problems, we put an enormous amount of attention and effort into trying to build the coalitions that we need to pass the policies that we want. Um, you know, if we think about any of the landmark legislation that we've had in recent decades from the Affordable Care Act to the IRA to any other of these big kind of efforts, they've taken years or decades even to pass because of all the um, work that it takes to get them through. But then what so much research and so much history has taught us is that if there isn't the same kind of effort that goes into the implementation, that the gains that we made with policy alone are really fragile. You know, there's one famous book that um, looks at some of these gains, these policy wins and calls them a hollow hope mm -hmm. if they're not accompanied by the kind of infrastructure that you're talking about. And we just have a lot of those kind of examples throughout history. So to give a couple of them, for example... You know, this book, The Hollow Hope, starts with um, Landmark's court legislation like Brown v. Board of Education, right. where um, if you actually look at 
the ability of that one decision by the Supreme Court to actually translate into integration on the ground, it didn't actually achieve its goals and its, its actual outcomes felt really hollow until you saw this mobilization of a lot of the school districts and parents and communities on the ground to make real the promises that were in that Supreme Court hearing. That particular example is kind of telling since that infrastructure withered a little bit and now those gains are being reversed, you know, so it's not just a one time thing like the sort of implementing it and making it real is perpetual effort. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? Because the thing that I always like to remind people is that any policy gains that we have are really fragile because they can always be reversed um, on on the one hand, um, as you point out, but then also because oftentimes when policy gets implemented, it drifts away from what the original goals are. So there's a famous political scientist, Jacob Hacker at Yale, you know, who looked a lot at basically welfare policy and um, a lot of social policies. And what he finds is that if you look at the impact of those policies on people's lives, that often there's a big gap between what legislators intended and what actually happened because of that process of drift. And that, I think, is also a really important point because what it tells us is that you don't need Congress to take another action to reverse policy gains, but in fact, it can just be ignoring a process that can lead to that kind of drift. Entropy, basically, like if you're not continually reinforcing it, it naturally will uh, start to erode. Yeah, exactly. That there's just kind of natural chaos in the system, or, or sometimes there are people that are actively working to undermine the ability to achieve those goals. Yes. Totally. And they never quit. And they have seem to have great infrastructure. <laughs> if I could just insert one of my perpetual uh, gripes in there, like infrastructure working against social welfare legislation is just robust and seemingly permanent. Yeah, it's easier to stop something than to create something new. Yeah. And it's also easier to organize people around their prejudices and to organize people around hope. Yes, indeed. So what are some examples then of, of the other side where, um, you know, sort of the infrastructure has come together around a law and made it? So one example that I like actually is the Community Reinvestment Act, which is not a perfect act by any stretch of the imagination. So I know that there are lots of ways in which we wouldn't necessarily hold it up as a paragon of legislation. But this is, can you tell us what that is basically? Uh-huh. The Community Reinvestment Act was passed essentially to try to stop redlining in poor and black communities. And so when you know, it first began to come out in the 1970s, 1980s, a lot of banks weren't lending to certain communities because um, they would literally draw red lines around neighborhoods where they wouldn't make investments. Um, The Community Reinvestment Act was passed as a way to try to stop that redlining. One of the things that was really important that they did in passing the Community Reinvestment Act is that they essentially created these mechanisms through which communities could have continual oversight over the way the banks were acting. And so the Community Reinvestment Act essentially created these boards that were an accountability mechanism for banks. And alongside the Community Reinvestment Act, there was a bill called the Home Mortgage Data Act, HUMDA is what it's called for short. And what HUMDA did was it made available the data that these local communities would need to be able to look at and see whether or not the banks were making investments in the ways that they should. You know, so that alone doesn't actually cost government a ton of money. But by creating that accountability mechanism, what it did was create this ongoing hook, essentially, around which communities could organize and essentially hold banks accountable. And so over time, we've seen trillions of dollars of investments being driven into lower income communities because of the Community Reinvestment Act. And so what do we mean then? I mean, we're, we're talking about infrastructure here sort of vaguely. What do we mean concretely by having the infrastructure in place to make these laws perform the way we want? What is it comprised of? So that's, that's a complicated question. In my mind, <laughs> movement infrastructure has a lot to do with the relationships, with the structures and the vehicles and the resources that a movement needs to be able to respond to the kind of strategic challenges that are going to come its way. And so I think one mistake that people make a lot in thinking about movements is to think about you know, the most effective movement is being the one that has the best plan at the beginning. But actually what we find is that the most effective movement is the one that can best respond to the contingency that comes up that it didn't expect. Mm. And what do you need to respond to contingency? Well, you need to have strong leaders, um, good people who are interconnected with each other. You need to have um, resources that you can deploy. Uh, You need to have vehicles that can move nimbly and agilely in response to things that might come up that you don't expect. There are, you know, a range of 
those kinds of things that I think comprise the movement infrastructure that enable that response. David, let's go to you for a second. Um, the Mosaic effort is an effort to build this kind of infrastructure. So I want to talk about what that infrastructure is, but let's back up a little bit. You know, Mosaic is a coalition of all these big, long-time sort of foundations and big green groups that have come together with the sort of explicit goal of changing the way environmental philanthropy is done. So let's start then with that. What is wrong with environmental philanthropy? Why does it need to change? What are its sort of flaws and, um, and shortcomings today? Well, that's a big question, too. <laughs> I, I, let me just say about Mosaic, it, it is really the name hopefully paints a picture of the idea and the theory, which is that it's not just the big organizations, but it's all of the organizations and the people, the, the activists and the advocates mm -hmm. that are individually doing important work, but are not collectively able to keep pace with the extraordinary challenges and the opponents that you refer to. They can do better in a more connected fashion. And what's been missing is the investments in that connectivity and the tools that Hari discussed. And we can talk about what they mean in the context of the IRA. But part of the reason that those tools that are so essential to movement success are missing is because in the main, big philanthropy hasn't invested in, in them. Hmm. Bridgespan, one of the leading social sector consultancies has published a whole uh, report about how field building, which is another way of looking at this, is one of the most effective yet underinvested strategies in philanthropy. So this is an endemic problem, I think, that has a lot to do with the fact that infrastructure is so important, but it's invisible in some sense. It's not vivid. It isn't like, you know, you can't take a picture of the forest that you've saved. It's the conditions, the how that you get to that result. Right. It's not obvious also what the metrics are right like if yeah. you're doing it right or not it's not it's not clear what you're you know it's, it's difficult to measure that's right it's difficult to measure so you know your question about philanthropy of course there are lots of different uh philanthropies and there's more coming um on the scene you know happily every day but mm -hmm. but in the main in big environmental uh, philanthropy funds in an atomistic way it funds narrowly it funds in a way that is, is exclusive and instead of inclusive and it tends to concentrate power so four aspects that are not well-suited to big-scale social change and not well-suited to implementing something of the scale of the IRA. And let me just give you a couple facts about this. The, the atomistic part is, is really concentrating resources in single organizations and not building the fields that make them stronger, the connections that Hari's talking about. Narrow. In 2018, uh, the Environmental Grantmakers Association, which is not an association of every environmental funder, but many of the really large ones, surveyed its members and found that just 200 nonprofits of the perhaps 15,000 that focus on the environment got over 50% of the 1.7 billion that its members donated in 2018. <laughs> and that is astounding if you think about it. 15,000 or so, you know, registered 501c3s and 200 are getting half the money. And that year, five nonprofits got 13% of that 1.7 billion funding pie the Nature Conservancy, World Wildlife, EDF, and the place I used to work, NRDC, four of those got $100 million grants from the Bezos Earth Fund a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. So you've got deep concentration. And then BIPOC organizations are funded at just a fraction between, say, 1% and 10%, depending on the study you look at. So there's an, not an inclusive focus. And last, something we're trying to address with Mosaic most of the decisions are made by program officers and boards, relatively few people with a certain type of demographic background, usually, not always. And so there isn't much investment in participatory grant making, which is what we're modeling with Mosaic, where leaders actually get to compare and to co-generate uh, strategy and then to deploy money themselves, as opposed to having to you know, ask for it from a philanthropy. So atomistic, narrow, exclusive, and concentrating isn't a recipe for success in general, and certainly not with respect to the IRA. This is so reminiscent. Like, this is a critique of left versus right philanthropic funding that goes back yeah. decades since I remember paying attention. It's always the right is investing in infrastructure, right? In the organizations, in the relationships. Like, you look at the, like, the Federalist Society, you know, that is basically all about relationships and look at the, like the tentacles it has sent out into into US society it's like just remarkably 
successful. And then you hear people on the left saying, you know, I can get a grant for a particular campaign or a particular, you know, accomplishment or a particular policy, but it's impossible to get sort of just operational funding, just yeah. basic funding for my my organization to survive. And those who do get it, as you say, are so concentrated. And when a single group gets so much money, it creates this sort of perverse incentive for the group to sort of put its own interests first, right? To keep getting the money. So you get these sort of, you get almost a resistance to cooperation and a resistance to working with others. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the competition for money, I have experienced myself when I was an advocate and lawyer doing, you know, environmental justice work and water advocacy and the things I did at NRDC. It, it, there's no question that it gets in the way. And part of the problem is there's not enough money because, you know, the organizations I mentioned, you know, I think are good organizations. So the issue isn't that they shouldn't be funded. It's that everyone else needs to be funded too. And money needs to flow in ways which are both equitable and fundamentally effective for large-scale social change. And philanthropy in the main, not always, but in the main, has missed that. And that's a big problem. I wanted to ask kind of a practical question about Mosaic. So you have this, um, you know, this grant-making uh, board, this representative board that has a, a lot of diverse people on it. And you have over a thousand relatively small scale applicants and what sounds like a really labor intensive process by which all these these applicants are vetted and and the and you know the board discusses them with one another and they're winnowed down and et cetera et cetera. I mean I was reading about this in the Chronicle of Philanthropy or whatever the heck it's called and it just sounds exhausting. You know, those people involved were saying it's exhausting. You know, it's like finals week all, all year. And yet the result of that is, you know, $11 million, which is in the context of these small groups, obviously nothing to shake a stick at, but, you know, like Bill Gates is just dropping $100 million here and there on this and that company. So I'm just asking about, I guess, the ratio of, of soft costs, of work, of time, intensiveness versus the amount of money that's being deployed. Do you think that's sustainable in the, in the long run? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, you know, the good news is that Mosaic is about to announce $10 million in additional funding. So it's a new effort that is beta testing a lot of the concepts that we're talking about and learning along the way. So I've been able to participate, which is a really interesting experience as somebody who also spent a decade and a half as an advocate and then uh, runs a foundation, a private foundation you know, that's in a more traditional mode. And it's true, it takes a lot of time, but I'll tell you, it takes a lot of time the other way too. So it's not um, really a question so much of how much time, but how, what is the quality of the time that's invested? And I think the benefit of participatory grant making that I see, particularly uh, when it's done well and leaders are involved, is that it itself is infrastructure. There are relationships that are formed, ideas that are exchanged, trust that is built, theories of change that are debated. And the environmental movement, as you know, both of you know, is fractious and doesn't always agree with each other. And so there's a value there that I think is differentially um, impactful compared to several program officers or one making decisions. Should there be more money in participatory grant making? Absolutely. And in fact, <laughs> there's a study that says that, you know, just a fraction of foundations participate in any way with grant-making approaches that devolve power to other people. And I think that's partly because there's not a lot of good examples of where it's worked. So hopefully, one of the things that Mosaic and, and other efforts can do is to demonstrate, you know, the benefit of this approach for others. And can you just very briefly describe the approach? Like, it's a committee. Yeah. And there are meetings. <laughs> What's, is there more to it than that? <laughs> yeah. It's just like a meeting, David, you know. Um, <laughs> There are a couple things. First of all, the application process seeks collaborative proposals. So that in itself is different. Usually, in my experience, it's like a single NGO approaching a single foundation. So already from the beginning, the proposals are done in a different way. They're done online. They can be done verbally, which I think is a, a really good progressive approach. They don't. Mm. There's no long 15-page proposal that is required. Right. Um, so that's an attempt to lower you know, the barriers of entry. And then there's a fabulous staff that has incredible data crunching capacity that looks for heat maps and does some initial vetting. And then the, the leadership that makes the decisions is not involved in all of that. So it's not that everybody's engaged at that stage. 
but then, you know, like we met in uh, for three days and went over, did a whole kind of retreat and reviewed the top section of, of proposals that the staff had prepared. And that was a, a debate like some of the best debates I've been involved as an environmental advocate where people are talking about what is needed, where, how do you compose a grant slate that's equitable and effective? How do you fund the grassroots? How do you fund relationships between the big greens and others, networks and communications and the rest? So what comes out of it, I think, you know, and I can compare because I run a foundation, I think is a really good way to approach things that really deserves a place much more solidly in the mainstream of environmental uh, grant making. Hari, as you know, from your perch, as Mosaic is sifting through all these applicants, what kinds of things should it be looking for? So, so like, what are the ingredients of this sort of movement infrastructure that you're talking about that you can identify in groups? You know, you're looking for certain kind of people, certain kind of strategies, certain kind of goals or financial structures? What's how, how would you go about building movement infrastructure? What are the sort of uh, indicators that you're looking for among grantees? It's a great question. So um, I think that in thinking about movement infrastructure, you know, in the end, what we're trying to do is identify individuals and organizations that aren't just the kind of individuals and organizations that can do a thing, but that can become the kind of people that do what needs to be done. Right. And so this kind of gets back to the idea that when you're thinking about implementing a bill as large as the IRA or building a movement as broad as what we need in the environmental movement, you, know, you have to anticipate the fact that there are going to be challenges coming your way you can't anticipate. And so right. I have to think about who are the kind of people that are going to be able to respond to that? What are the kind of organizations that can respond to that? And so then how do I actually think about and identify that, you know, at time one without knowing what the challenges are that they're going to be investing in in time two. Yeah, exactly. Um, the things that I would look for would be things like, what is the extent to which they're building networks among their people that are bridging versus just bonding? You know, and so the idea of a bonding network is one in which people are connected to other people who are a lot like them. Bridging networks are ones that um, not only create those bonds, but also enable people to bridge across to different kinds of people who aren't necessarily like them. And so what that means is that you have an organization that's constantly growing and, and renewing itself. I would look for organizations that are investing in building a kind of inclusive leadership in the way that David was describing, partly because I think, obviously, there are moral reasons why we would want to make sure that we have an inclusive leadership, but partly also for strategic reasons. And um, there's a lot of research that shows that the movements that can best anticipate and respond to contingency, this is true not only for movements, but actually for um, corporations as well, yeah. are ones that have lots of different kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of sensors out in the community to sort of understand what are the changes that are coming our way and how do we figure out how we can anticipate how we need to remake ourselves for the future. And so if you don't have that kind of diversity of people giving you input, then you don't, you're not able to respond nimbly to the constantly changing world around you. So there are a lot of things like that that I think begin to give us a sense. Yeah, I think this is such an important point. And maybe I'll, I'll, I'll toss that back to you also, David, because I, I feel like, you, you know, and I've done a couple of pods on this recently. You've been thinking about it recently. And, and, you know, this idea of, you know, trying to fund a more diverse, give money to more diverse groups and et cetera. It's so often framed in terms of sort of representation as kind of an end in itself, like a moral good in itself. Like it's just good to have other people there because you want to check the box you know, but but the point of all this, and this is the point that comes across, you know, in like management literature and all this, is not just that it's good, but that diverse groups make better decisions. <laughs> like it's an improvement in your ability to do good things. It's not just for looks or not just for box checking. It makes you perform better. And I wonder, David, if you've, you know, now that you've really gotten your hands dirty trying to assemble. <laughs> A group like this. If, I wonder your thoughts on that, if you've found that to be the case. Absolutely. And, you know, I would just to, just to add to what you said a second ago, for many grant makers, again, not all, but I see and hear a lot that makes me think that equitable grant making for some is their charity, not their strategy. Right. Yes. Right. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference. There's certainly a moral imperative to fund communities and people who have more than their fair share of problems and who have been deprived of money from, you know, big institutional funders historically. So that stands on its own. But the point you're making um, is not only, I think, about the fact that better, more creative and interesting solutions come up 
which do, but that you can build power that way, as Hari's pointing out, by bridging between what could be sort of atomistic, semi-competitive or worse communities within a movement and to find some sort of working relationships, if not stronger relationships, productive relationships that allow, you know, big, important social change to happen. And that, I think, is one of the most important things that's missed when we pick, you know, fractions within a movement, either the big greens, if you're talking about the environmental movement or frontline organizations, I think both can play a role and they can play a, a synergistic role when their collective impact is, is built on some relationship. And sometimes that isn't that we're going to totally agree. It's not kumbaya, let's all get along. It's that often when you're in relationship and you're in those rooms, you can find that you might disagree about two or three things, and maybe those are not going to get resolved, but there's three or four things that you can agree on. And through that kind of doorway, you can make progress that you couldn't make otherwise. And that, that's why some of the effort, you know, in answering the question you asked earlier, I think is worth it because it's not just process or overhead. It is actually the work. It is actually the infrastructure. Another question for you, Hari, is about, you know, sort of backing up from the implementation, just the legislation itself. You know, it seems to me like not only should environmental philanthropists be thinking in terms of infrastructure and implementation, but obviously like legislators should too. Like you can do better or worse in the text of a law on those terms. And this is something I feel like another, this is another critique of, of Democrats that goes way back, which is that they don't lose well, right? <laughs> like they don't lose in a way that improves their chances the next time. And even when they do pass legislation, it's not like, you know, always part of the goal of the legislation should be to make future reforms easier, to make future reforms more likely. So I wonder, A, like, do you see anything in the IRA that sort of qualifies as kind of that, like an eye on infrastructure building? Right. And if not, what would you like to see? Like in future legislation, what are the sorts of things you might put in legislation that would help this infrastructure building? Yeah, I think it's so important, you know, in designing policy to think about what the feedback effects that you're creating, um, because, you know, a lot of the most effective policies that we've seen throughout history are ones that have these feedback effects that essentially, you know, what you want to do is create a feedback effect that strengthens the constituencies that you want to strengthen and then either weakens or divides the opponents right, <laughs> to, right. to the bill, right? And that's how you create the kind of uh, loops that you're talking about that enable the passage of the next set of reforms, you know, make them more, even more likely than they were before. With the IRA, I think the opportunity that's on the table is the fact that you know, so much of this money is essentially being delegated out through state agencies and other, you know, local governmental agencies that are operating at many different levels of, of government. And the extent to which this money can be doled out in a way that builds what I like to think of as, you know, like relational state capacity, right? The ability of these governments to co-govern and work in partnership with community leaders and community groups on the ground that only then makes the next generation of reform and policy and funding and implementation that much stronger. And so I feel like a lot of the design questions that we have on the table right now about how this money gets allocated through this network of state and local agencies and um, other intermediaries is going to be really important in helping to determine the extent to which we have those kind of feedback loops or not. Yeah. And something I've actually heard from people, you know, sort of in the back rooms involved in building IRA is that among Democrats in Congress, there's been a sort of uh, learning, let's say, that you don't necessarily want to channel all your money through state governments, right? Like, mm -hmm. because there are a lot of perverse <laughs> state governments who who will do things like refusing billions of dollars of free federal money so that they can keep their poor people from having health care, that kind of thing, right? Like mm -hmm. they've learned from the past that you can't rely on. So a lot of the IRA is sort of built around the idea of going straight to communities, straight to local communities, which I thought, you know, is heartening that the democratic establishment is, is learning things. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's heartening partly because it's, you know, learning how to play that political game. Right. But also heartening because then that implicitly builds this capacity and these capabilities in these local communities in a way that can have greater effects down the road. 
Yeah. And, you know, if I could just add to that, just to connect, you know, something we've been talking about, well, so what does it look like, you know, to make a grant on movement infrastructure? You know, a couple of the grants that Mosaic is making this year focus on a a really bridging network of 17,000 plus climate advocates, policymakers, academics. It's just connecting that group. Another grant is facilitating rural implementation and trying to create networks uh, that make it easier for folks who may not be as uh, you know commonly working in the areas of electrification and tax incentives and so forth to provide those opportunities. And there's another grant that's actually uh, focused on government officials themselves and sort of educating them about the opportunity, not in environmental terms even necessarily, but in terms of what they can do for their communities. And so those are ways of sort of spurring the kind of relationships that, you know, Hari is talking about. You know, from where you're sitting, you're sort of, you, you got a, a bird's eye view of dozens and dozens and dozens of small groups <laughs> who, want, who want money. So I wonder, um, you know, part of shifting funding from a couple of big groups to a wide variety of small groups is about just sort of like, you know, hedging your bets and building infrastructure. But I wonder if you found among the applicants just ideas and strategies that are not represented among the big groups. In other words, like genuinely new ideas for, <laughs> for for how to approach things. I wonder, you know, if you could just talk about some of the applications and the patterns that emerged. Well, one of the things that's amazing is that it's such a diverse set of ideas. And when, from a philanthropic practice perspective, when you're not relying on a single individual to, you know, vet potential proposals, I mean, nobody knows everybody and everybody's <laughs> got a limit to their day. Um, you just get, you know, an eye-opening kind of response. And I think that was something that everybody, CEOs of big groups or part of Mosaic, CEOs of smaller groups, EJ groups, felt. So some of what we saw is is a desire to sort of shift the terms of debate. And I don't know how uh, that I don't think is very well funded in mainstream environmental philanthropy. Different theories of change, different approaches to the economy questions, you know, around um, how to frame economic growth in different ways, um, indigenous perspectives on the protection of the environment and elevating the rights of nature as a, as a theory. These are not directly related to, you know, a tax incentive for decarbonizing your house, but they come through and they're, they're interesting perspectives that don't get a lot of play. More practically, we saw um, a lot of, of really interesting collaborations between different organizations, some of which work together, some of which don't, and are using you know, the opportunity to apply for a collaborative grant to stretch their wings in ways which, as Hari saying, may grow into something that has nothing to do with the proposal right. uh, before us. You know, one interesting proposal was to build you know, solar capacity in communities of color using the tax incentives and, and actually, I think, direct grants that are available for solar installation, uh, not only generally, but in, in underserved communities, to turn that into a workforce development effort for brown and black people. So there's a whole set of things that um, I think are going to be helpful in actually reaching the goals of the IRA, which are not guaranteed to happen and can build for the future. One other question I wanted to ask in, in terms of what was on your mind as you're picking grantees is... And this is anyone who listens to the pod will know that this is an enduring obsession of mine, but it seems like one of the basic headwinds facing implementation of the IRA, facing basically any progressive effort, is this massive, extremely well-developed propaganda apparatus on the other side that has basically captured rural America has, you know, almost entirely captured rural America. And in a sense, like any attempt to do anything reality-based in the face of that is, is it just gets swamped. So I wonder if there were a lot of ideas among the applicants about, to put it dramatically, sort of information warfare, about how to fight back against what is, you know, the inevitable tide of, misinformation about this bill, about these technologies, et cetera, et cetera. Was that a theme? Yes, and, and, but maybe in a more positive sense that the IRA, I think to the, the credit of its designers, is itself a pretty profound uh, attempt to push back on that narrative. But because, you know, really what we're talking about is decarbonization 
in theory, but the practice of it is through electrification of power and cars and incentives for clean energy and right down to what any of us as people who live in a, a home could, you know, get a credit or um, a refund for purchasing like a heat pump. And there is in the IRA specific money that goes both to vulnerable communities, EJ communities, as well as to rural communities, mm -hmm. of which, you know, there are 40 million people in the U.S. who live in rural communities, 50% of the landmass of the country. And so we're talking about a significant space in the country and a specific, uh, and a lot of people. The opportunity, for example, to decarbonize uh, rural electrical cooperatives, which have really relied on coal, which has very significant public health impacts in addition, yeah. you know, is a huge opportunity that isn't necessarily cloaked in environmental terms. It's a great opportunity to reduce cost and to create jobs. And there's a whole set of parts of the IRA that are entirely focused on farm communities and forest communities that involve, you know, credits and other types of incentives for regenerative agriculture for dealing with water scarcity, increasing water scarcity, and things that just have basic bottom line benefits economically and are part of cleaning up and making the, the, the economy greener in, in those areas. So I see those set-asides or, or those components, uh, set-asides is probably not the right word, for environmental justice and for rural communities as a really powerful step. And I think it connects a lot to what Hari is talking about in terms of it, will this change the experience of people who might think of environmental groups as not their friend and uh, really recontextualize what this is about? And if I can chime in here on just on the question of disinformation that is spreading in uh, so many of our communities and especially in a lot of these rural communities, you know, I've been doing a lot of work recently um, studying evangelical communities and, you know, which operate in a variety of different kinds of contexts. But one of the things I've really learned from the way a lot of um, evangelical churches organize their communities is they had this, you know, this idea that like belonging comes before belief, hmm. you know, that so often, I think when we think about building an environmental movement, there's sort of this implicit assumption that belief comes before belonging, right? Like that you've got to sign on to this idea that we all right. need to decarbonize before we're going to invite you into our meetings. And if you show up in your Range Rover and your hunting gear, like maybe you're not going to feel as welcome, um, right. you know, as you do otherwise. And these churches have the very opposite idea where they say, you know, look, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to believe in any God, especially our God, or, you know, we're not going to be shy about what we stand for, but you're a part of us no matter what. And they have this attitude of radical hospitality. And, you know, that's really undergirded by a lot of research that we have on disinformation, where when you're trying to combat that kind of propaganda, the least effective thing you can do is throw a lot of scientific evidence at someone who yes. believes fake news. Fact sheets. Right. But the best thing that you can do is, you know, have someone who they trust with whom they feel the sense of belonging come and talk to them and present an alternative narrative. And so in that sense, I feel like a lot of the work that Mosaic is doing in investing in these community-based organizations that can build those communities of belonging in rural areas across America is another really important piece of combating this kind of disinformation. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. I mean, you, you have results that support this basic conclusion from, you know, sociology, from like neurology, <laughs> name your field. It, it all is coming together to basically show that social relationships are primary and very often like your beliefs are derived from those rather than vice versa, as you're saying. And, you know, and this is also a long time criticism of the left. You know, we sort of, and this is, you know, sort of conventional wisdom at this point, unions were sort of the left's tool, unions and liberal churches right. were kind of the left's tool for doing that, for, for just for literally bringing people together in the same room, you know, so they can see and smell one another and, right. you know, share beers. And, and, and that stuff is, is so important and has been, and, you know, unions have withered notoriously and liberal churches are, have kind of withered and the left has nothing to replace them, you know, so... Right. In that sense, I think it's just great to be funding these super basic, just like get in a room together group type things. Yeah. And, you know, if I could just say one of the challenges practically with the, you know, Hari's talking about radical hospitality is that let's just say that the federal government doesn't come with radical hospitality, even if it's offering billions of dollars that can be used. <laughs> and so breaking that down, how do you apply for money? How do you even track? Right. Right. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I have difficulty <laughs> with the federal register and I was trained and supposedly I'm supposed to be competent in that. And 
a lot of the investments that we're making and and others I think hopefully will be too is about creating some basic kind of open doorways that make the opportunities accessible and relatable when they are not in any of our lives necessarily top of mind. We're also supporting uh, faith communities through Mosaic and veterans who are trying to organize around climate change and other new or newer voices, nurses and healthcare professionals, who I think reflect some of the, the experience and the research that, that Hari is talking about, where it's a lot better to have somebody who you trust who is in relationship with you talk to you about an issue that you might not hear the same if it's sort of an environmental leader on television or something like that. Yeah. And this is, you, you know, to Hari's earlier point, like once that relationship is established, it works for the next thing too, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah. that's what, I guess what we mean by infrastructure, like once it's there, it's built and, and, and it operates right. beyond the immediate context. Hari, I wonder, um, what sort of question I had is, you know, a lot of the money in the IRA is just for very practical prosaic stuff, machines, you know, retrofits, whatever. And so most of the attention around all this is sort of building these networks, building this infrastructure to allow people to access that money. But I wonder if you've given any thought, or David, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this too, is whether the money itself can be spent in such a way as to serve this goal, spent in such a way as to encourage infrastructure, you know, not only sort of trying to get the money, but trying to direct the money in ways that are reinforcing of this larger goal. You know, one thing that I think about is this question of what are the mechanisms of accountability that are being created through the way the IRA gets deployed? Because ultimately that question of accountability is the one that's going to determine the extent to which these you know, ongoing feedback loops are created in the, in, the, in the ways that would favor ongoing reform or not. And so, you know, as all this money is being deployed to, for heat pumps or, you know, other basic machines that are needed to um, help decarbonize the entire economy, I think it's not just about spending that money once, right? But it's about restructuring the way the economy works in these certain kind of communities. And how can that be done in a way that will continue to ensure that the kinds of voices that we want at the table are continually there and that those voices are strengthened through the development of this whole new system? Yeah. Two thoughts on that. One, that that a very um, kind of visual thing came to mind because there's a part of the IRA uh, that is focused on environmental justice and on transportation projects in the 50s and 60s that literally physically split communities, usually brown or black communities. And the opportunity actually to reconnect is is quite a beautiful visual metaphor for what you're asking about. And I think would almost naturally create the opportunities for communities to rediscover their connections in ways that have been like literally physically severed by, you know, decisions. But Beyond that, and more broadly, I think this is where advocates, activists come into play. Because I think a couple of possibilities are out there. One is that the IRA is successful, but the experience of individuals and even companies is very solitary. You know, I go to Home Depot, I get something from my house that costs less, or I can fill out a form and get a a rebate check from somebody. That's a solitary experience. It, it, It may be very marginal in terms of anybody's you know, psychological thinking about these issues. But if environmental organizations or those that are interested in these issues are able to surround those sorts of economic activities with new connection opportunities, information, as Harry says, it is relatable, where trusted messengers are delivering it, so that that act of participating in the IRA's um, opportunities is also an act of stepping forward and opening yourself up to, well, you know what, that heat pump actually performs better than what I had before. Maybe some of these environmental ideas aren't so crazy. Right. Um, that's where you get chestnut checkers. And that's so <laughs> essential that um, activists and advocates uh, working on climate really seize this opportunity to work dimensionally around these opportunities. Because if they don't, I think we could, you know, have a different level of success, but not something that would be as systemically transformational as is possible. Right. Yeah. I think about the analogy sort of in like, uh, you know, fitness or or weight loss, like one of the sort of most common forms of advice now is find a group or a community or even just another person 
and make your goals public, like put your goals out there and then be sort of accountable to that other person. Or, you know, I think about the conversation about gamifying things, just sort of like, you know, make things that are solitary social in some way where you get social reward or social feedback or you have social accountability. A, that's good for you to have those networks, but also like you're just more likely to do those individual things if you have some social network that they're involved in. And I was, you know, I was, your answer made me think of how you would think about doing that with Ira, right? Like somehow making the act of going to get your heat pump, you know, social in some ways so that it brings some feedback or accountability or so it weaves you more into some right. sort of group setting. Right. That's the play. That's the thing to do. And um, that can make a huge difference. As can organizing around money that is not actually available to individuals, but is going to so many parts of, of the economy that impact people directly, like ports. There's $3 right. billion dollars for ports and uh, $3 billion for reconnecting communities. I mentioned that a minute ago and on and on. And that involves influencing government actors, as Hari was pointing out earlier, both to take advantage of the opportunities and then to do so well, you know, to, to propose projects that are going to make a difference. That's a classic uh, organizing opportunity. And of course, if you have the infrastructure in place, you can reward politicians who do the good thing, thereby, you know, showing the other politicians that there's positive feedback to be had in this direction. Yeah. David, one more question for you, I, which is a slightly prosaic, but I have been thinking about it a lot, which is just, you know, this sort of initial round of like throwing open the gates of environmental philanthropy money to this much wider variety of, um, you know, participants, smaller groups, et cetera, et cetera. In a sense, the initial rush of it is like a sugar high. Like it's great. I think everybody's, <laughs> everybody's excited, but, yeah. but over time, you do need, you know, this sort of a, the foundation's obsession with metrics and accountability. I think we can all agree has maybe sometimes gone overboard and results in a lot of paperwork and a lot of unnecessary difficulty and gatekeeping. But those those needs are not made up, right? So are there any sort of performance metrics or what is, what does accountability look like when you're moving into this kind of fuzzier, you know, relational stuff you know, like what would it take for a grantee to lose their funding? What do you have in place in terms of accountability? Or have you thought of, thought about that a lot? Well, you know, it's a good question. And it's a question I think that people in philanthropy and people who are looking for money think about a lot. And, you know, I mean, the baselines I think are important. What's the context in which we're operating? Uh, and a lot of the, there, there's kind of basic due diligence that, you know, an organization is a 501c3 and so forth and so on. But beyond that, whether it's a mosaic context or a more traditional foundation, a lot of the metrics are artificially simplified and, and they become at times bean counting operations. And I know this because I used to propose those to foundations <laughs> when I was doing advocacy. You know, I'm well, a it's easier, right? I mean, right, one of right. the things about it, it's very easy if you have a, you know, a simple marker. Right. I'm going to write a report and then I can send the report to the funder and say, look, I wrote a report. And if I'm lucky, you know, I got on David's podcast. So, you know, I got like, you know, I brought attention to it. And I'm not suggesting that those things don't make a difference. I, I used to write reports and I think they can make a difference in the right circumstances. So the question becomes, what are we comparing to? And I, I think where we are right now is sort of a bit of an artifice. Having said that, you can um, evaluate and learn from movement building just as you can uh, grants, just as you can from any other. You just need a much more relational touch. And I, I would ask, you know, Hari might want to jump in on this because she's looked so carefully at the types of outcomes that occur. And I think the outcomes that we're looking for, we're, we're looking to be patient, you know, funding. We're mm -hmm. looking to recognize that we're not going to necessarily see some sort of vivid and tangible, like uh, ribbon cutting in a year, and that we're not really asking people to propose things to us, which we know as a collective uh, making decisions from the advocacy community, from the field, are simply unrealistic. So I think one of the most important things to do is to, is to recognize that if we're going to build resilient organizations, that that in itself is the outcome we're looking for, as opposed to some sort of simplified, you know, kind of artificially linear kind of, uh, you know, Gantt chart that we can say was met or wasn't met. I totally agree with what David was saying. And, you know, an analogy that I use sometimes in thinking about this is the idea that 
in the corporate world, in the for-profit world, we invest in companies all the time based on their assets, right? And that I would be foolish, in fact, as an investor, if I only evaluated a company's profits in the prior year and didn't look at their assets going forward, that I should, in fact, be really making judgments based on um, what they can do in the future. And I think in the same way for movements, a lot of philanthropy, I think, tend to only hold movements accountable for the equivalent of their quote-unquote profits, but really what they should be investing in is what those assets are going forward. And I think one of the things that's really exciting about what Mosaic is doing is trying to strengthen those assets and then continually invest in them over time. Yeah. One just other quick vignettes. You know, that we've been doing this only a couple of years, but it's long enough now to start hearing from grantees who themselves report, you know, in excited tones how amazing it is from their perspective to be able to get funding for things that would simply not even be possible in other contexts. And what it means if you're a small, you know, hub in, in, for advocacy in Appalachia to have some communications money or to have some of the things that maybe the larger organizations just take for granted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going to be developing a lot of that information because I think you're onto something, David, that, you know, mainstream philanthropy, you know, to move hundreds of millions and billions in, in these directions is what we need to do and that we're not going to be able entirely to tell people just to trust us, that we have to meet <laughs> folks where they are and, you know, focus on developing sort of a comfort and a, and a conversance with what, what we're attempting to do here. What about, and I guess I throw this one to both of you too, we're so um, behind the eight ball <laughs> on climate change and a lot of other environmental problems that a lot of solutions are relatively obvious. Like a lot of the things that need to be done are relatively obvious and uncontroversial, but you can sort of imagine, you know, different demographics coming at this from different places, having some pretty fundamental disagreements about, you know, the theory of change or even like sort of what kind of society we're shooting for, you know, like there's like sort of a climate socialist left and then there's like a very sort of establishment center left kind of big environmental group, Uh, you, you know, and there are real philosophical and ideological disagreements. And I wonder just how do you deal with those when they... Can we find enough in common that they can be kind of papered over and we can move forward together? Or do you worry about those emerging in a more enduring way? Well, I mean, you, as you know, David and Hari, that, you know, those cleavages have already emerged in yeah. environmental advocacy. And I think we're in the midst of a reckoning about how, you know, larger organizations have operated, how big philanthropy operates, um, the role of a just transition versus simply looking for uh, tons of reduction. I mean, right. these are part of Mosaic's kind of birth came not from me, but from 18 months of really cogenerative development with 100 different leaders that really looked at those questions. I think as much as infrastructure is important in tangible ways, as Hari is emphasizing, the relational components are essential. Yeah. And they don't resolve every question. And, uh, you know, whether you're in business or you're in sports or you're whatever you're doing in life, your own relationships. The fundamental question isn't whether people can truly agree on every last detail. It's whether they can form more productive relationships in the advocacy work they're doing. That's the goal. And if you can make an advocacy community, you know, of 15,000 organizations, like 10% better, <laughs> that is a net effective investment that's huge in terms of its outcome. So we're, we're having these conversations as part of Mosaic, and they're going on across the field and the question is, where do you build the infrastructure to have them in, a, in ways that are reparative? One of the focuses of Mosaic is about relationships and trust. And some people look at that when we show a PowerPoint, they're like, relationships and trust? <laughs> what does that have to do with the environment or climate? Well, actually, oh, it has a everything, lot to do. Everything. Yeah, everything. It has everything to do with everything. That's right. But it's not a commonly, you know, you can look at a lot of foundation websites before you're going to find relationships and trust. <laughs> You know, difference and disagreement is inherent to any kind of collaborative effort, especially one at the scale that that we're talking about. And I think the idea that we're going to be able to either paper over or ignore those differences or or get everyone to just get along, you know, sometimes feels like it's, it's a frustrating way to approach the problem. And, you know, what we know from a lot of previous experiences and research and, and so on is that um, what makes it possible for these kind of coalitions to navigate those kind of, you know, deep strategic differences like the ones you're describing about is the extent to which they create equitable power sharing agreements so that, mm. you know, the 
super lefty groups and the center left groups can <laughs> kind of have the sense that like we don't we know we're not going to all agree on everything in the end but we're going to be really clear about how we're going to make decisions together about what we're going to do and how we're going right. to allocate resources we're going to be heard right it's yeah. so so often it's it's just about that as much as anything else right and so you know having a participatory board where there's this transparent you know governance process you know, just kind of starts to create those habits of learning how to share power across lots of different theories of change. I think that working together in person or like face to face often shows people that like, oh, despite our differences, there is actually a time we can work together on there. And we do have more in common than we thought. Whereas the common communicative environment these days of social media is more or less structured to have the opposite effect, right? To sort of exaggerate differences and to encourage people to dig in and, and, and be, you know, the most extreme version of their, their selves. So anything that works against that is a social good in my book. Yeah. I think that sometimes we mistake attention for power and, you know, part of why social media can be so alluring is because it gets you lots of attention and the more divisive you are, the more attention you get, but to actually build power, you have to build those kind of bridges. And so what we have to do is kind of break that idea that having more attention is necessarily the same as having power. Yeah. And I'll just say quickly that, you know, Mosaic launched into the teeth of the, the pandemic and Oof. and we, we've made far more progress when we were, start, you know, when we were able to actually meet together. Um, it's a very different thing to look at somebody through a, effectively, a, you know, a, whether it's your handheld screen or a screen on your desk it tends to reinforce the sort of archness that people can bring into um, a room where there are diverse perspectives. Um, but there's nothing like the in-person um, meetings and and even the socialization between people who don't know each other yeah. just to create a little bit of grace between them. A final question um, that I'd like to hear you both weigh in on, which is very uh, general, but just this shift in approach that Mosaic sort of represents of focusing on movement infrastructure, focusing on relationships and, and just sort of infrastructure building and having a much more diverse, pluralistic decision-making structure, sharing power, all this kind of stuff, very much for reasons we've discussed, tax against a lot of the sort of trends and, and tendencies in, uh, on the left in, in the past few decades. What's the theory of change here? What would you like to see if this catches on, like, you know, in, in a positive world where this new strategy catches on, what would you like to see in like five to 10 years? What can you imagine improving? What is the sort of theory of change here? If this new approach takes over what do you think is possible in the next five to 10 years? My mind goes back to the point that you were making, David, earlier, which is that you know there's been this longstanding pattern where it feels like the, the right invests in the kind of deep work that is needed to make large scale shifts in society and politics. And, and the, the left feels like it's swimming along in the shallow end <laughs> all along the way. And, you know, we're in a moment right now where clearly the change that we need is deep and not shallow, and it's got to operate quickly and, you know, and also in the long term. And so for me, it's like when you build this kind of infrastructure and mechanisms like Mosaic, um, what I would love to see in five years, 10 years is, you know, a kind of deepening of the movements and the or- the network of organizations that are able to continually advance uh, the kind of agenda that we really need. Um, and so, you know, you can think back to the early decades of the rise of the, you know, a lot of the kind of organizations that comprise the the right, you know, they sort of started at the same place that we are now in a way and steadily built over a couple of decades, uh, that kind of death that is now being deployed. Yeah. And, and I'll just build on that. I think, you know, from a, from a very practical sense, you know, the conversation we're having today is about profound, you know, existential challenges that we're facing with climate change and, and beyond. Um, you know, we, I, I hold as a, somebody who's, you know, devoted my professional life to this, both real pride in our grantees and the work that's being done. Where would we be without the laws that we've got and the work that's been done? And at the same time, this recognition that so many have that notwithstanding our best efforts, that those efforts aren't adding up to keep pace with the scale of the change that we're facing. And so it very practically mosaic and things like it, if, if it can be a model, is designed to create a more powerful and effective environmental movement that can effectuate the big change that we need, not just theorize about it, not just plan for it, not just write about it, but actually implement it at scale and over the time period that's available to us, which with climate is 
not that long by 2030. That's what we need to be focused on. And that's what, what Mosaic and things like we've been talking about today are really directed toward. A positive note to wrap up on Hari Han, David Beckman. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and, and talking through all this stuff and good luck with your efforts. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>